And what people seem to think is in sport is that we only eat when we have an appetite. That's our main driver. Um, and actually, that's not the case at all, because there are so many things that can affect our appetite. But the reality is that our appetite, either for some people, you need to override that and, and actually eat and refuel and put the fuel back in and the calories back in to cover the cost of the piece of work that you've just done. Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. And today I'm joined by Sharon Madigan. Sharon works as the Head of Performance Nutrition for the Irish Institute of Sports since 2010 with responsibilities for the coordination of nutrition support services to elite athletes and lead service delivery to a number of national governing bodies. She has taught sports nutrition within the School of Health and Human Performance at Dublin City University from 2006 to 2016 and has provided support into projects that included nutritional elements. As well as her involvement in sports, Sharon also works part-time as a respiratory dietitian within the Belfast Trust, working specifically in pulmonary rehabilitation with COPD patients, that's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and is currently collaborating with the University of Ulster on a number of projects. Did I get that right? That's right, yeah. Welcome to the podcast and thanks very much for giving up your time. I know you've been very busy today and... You were actually the last guest I was planning to have on before we went into lockdown. I remember we were planning to meet up in Belfast and it didn't work out. And I more or less took a break after that. So delighted to have you back now. My first question for you is, what is sports nutrition? That's a really good question. I suppose basically it's how you feed yourself to cover the basics um, for you as an individual. Um, but also to to factor in then the requirements for your own personal training plan and also the requirements of your job, your college, whatever your day-to-day requirements are. You need to factor in your weight, your height, all of those different things. So actually, sports nutrition is very different for, for everybody, I suppose. As an athlete... I know that if I was to pick up a sport-related injury, something like shin splints or IT band syndrome, and without really thinking about it now, I'd go for a massage or go and see a physio. Do you think that athletes, and especially amateur athletes, realise that, that the sports nutritionist has the same or maybe sometimes more of an importance than some of the other therapists or, or professionals that we will go to see? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think if you go for a massage, if you have a nice bath, if you have some kind of laying of the hand, maybe where you can actually feel it there and then, there's almost a kind of, a, I suppose, a, a positive feedback loop that's created there. So what, what tends to happen is that that kind of reinforces, oh my goodness, I feel great, um, so much looser. Um, yeah, things feeling absolutely fantastic but the reality is that and and this is the tricky bit from nutrition not only from the point of view of sports nutrition but just generally health promotion you know telling people 
that if they adopt different behaviors and practices might prevent a heart attack in 40 or 50 years time kind of really doesn't cut the mustard for you know human beings we're real creatures of we need if we if we do something we like to see a result today or tomorrow wouldn't you agree with that what you mentioned about the feedback loop do you think that athletes are i suppose honest with what they're giving us as feedback um in terms of some some athletes are particularly honest they tell you everything um some athletes don't tell you everything or kind of maybe forget i, I suppose there the, the tricky bit is that there are a number of different things whenever you're actually doing endurance and and lots of activity that can have a real negative impact on how and why and what you want to eat. And the first one being is that heavy exercise absolutely dampens down and affects your appetite. It's actually part of the inflammatory response um, that happens. And, and I see this clinically a lot with people with chronic diseases. You mentioned that I work in um, pulmonary rehab. When people have bad chests and they're they're under this kind of inflammatory response, they have no appetite. And what people seem to think is in sport is that we only eat when we have an appetite. That's our main driver. Um, and actually, that's not the case at all, because there are so many things that can affect our appetite. But the reality is that our appetite either... For some people, you need to override that and and actually eat and refuel and put the fuel back in and the calories back in to cover the cost of the piece of work that you've just done. And some people, when they've done a big session, they've no appetite. In fact, they can actually feel quite sick. Um, And the natural response to that is, I'll kind of wait a while. I'll, I'll wait to kind of, I get my drivers to eat here. And then I'll... I'll have whatever I want and I'll I'll enjoy that. Or there's some other schools of thought that say, well, actually, I shouldn't really be eating at night because that's not good for you. Um, I've read or heard or blah, blah, blah. But if you've just done 20 or 30 or 40K or, you know, you're going to be doing that over a very short period of time, you can't use what's in the general domain in terms of what your public needs who's sitting on a couch for 23 out of the 24 hours a day versus what you've just done in terms of your training. So you've got to look at what your training requirements are for you as an individual and then try and work with some of the limitations that you have as an individual um, to try and piece together something that's going to allow you to do that day in, day out. I probably shouldn't have said, Ardy, not being honest with the feedback. Maybe I should have said, do you think they could be hiding some of how they're feeling? Because I've just noticed myself with athletes that if they're about they feel like they're falling behind and they might then try harder and start digging themselves into more of a hole. Yeah, and listen, if you're under fueling, every part of you is going to be affected. And what what I certainly see in, in some of the weight category sports that I work with, when some of those individuals are trying to come into weight where they actually have to stand on the scales to weigh in, otherwise they can't compete. Um they're Moods are shocking. Um, they actually, um, they really are in bad form. And 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 I, and I see this again. I, I come back to my patients because the reality is that 
inflammatory response, numbs that appetite, people eat less, then they have less energy to eat and their mood gets worse. They get very low and um, perform. And actually then we start to get into digging this hole that's even further. And, and that's, okay, one side of things and, and clearly not the same as um, ultra-endurance athletes. But there are similarities in terms of, you know, if you're under your mood's not as good. You, you make poor decisions in terms of how you go about um, how and when you eat. And the other thing that we we tend to get an awful lot of, which is really very tricky to manage, is people seem to have these ideas about what's good and bad. I hate those words, but they use them with food all the time. And there's this idea that, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have eaten that. That was bad. Therefore, I really have to kind of um, not eat anything now because I shouldn't have done that. The wheels have come off the bus. And there's almost this like guilt, you know, beating yourself up about eating a chocolate biscuit or whatever. And then I kind of like a starvation type thing because maybe you've done that. And a thought process around that just doesn't stack up on so many levels because what I see on the other side of that in terms of health and well-being is I actually see some of the bloods that come back, some of the bone health that comes back. And for me, they're appalling, they're shocking, and they're not healthy. But that's because actually athletes have not eaten enough. And you know what? A chocolate bar is actually probably going to be much healthier in the context of that than it is for somebody who's 25 stone sitting on a couch eating them by the truckload. So, again, athletes clearly have context out of complete kilter. And and I really struggle sometimes to understand where that has come from. And I think it has come from loads of different things. They read A, B and C. They see A, B and C. They're completely bombarded with people on social media that have huge issues themselves, John. And giving these messages, um, which are completely crazy. Yes, I'm seeing quite a lot of that on Instagram. You'll have somebody giving nutritional voice with their top off. Crazy. And I don't have to go very far in an Instagram post or, you know, to see and feel that somebody has some serious issues with their food. Yes. And that's not sports nutrition. No. That's the opposite no, of what we're talking about now, yeah. And I guess how athletes then can really get caught in lots of mixed messages. Now, there recently I, I was reading an article from the Journal of Biomechanics. It was called The Effects of Running in an Exerted State on Lower Extremity Kinetics and Joint Timing. And it was to do with injury prevention or, or, or the cause of injury when we're looking at races of kind of a long duration. Do you think that nutrition plays an important part in the athlete staying injury-free? 100%. 80 to 90% of the athletes presenting to the doctor and the physio are sent to me because that's the reason that they presented with the injury. That's big numbers, isn't it? It is, yeah. That, that's very big. I remember listening to one of your lectures before called Balancing the Books. And I think it was oh, yeah. explaining... Uh, I suppose, the day-to-day and week-to-week requirements of an athlete relative to your average person. Yeah, and actually within 
within days really important as well um, or within the period of time. I think um, I think people look at day to day quite significantly because they go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But actually, if you look at blocks of time within a week, it's particularly important to look at that as well. So, for example, you could have somebody on a Monday night going out to do, you know, 20K. Um, they see a chink of time on a Tuesday morning and they do another quick, you know, 8, 12K. And then they might do a bit of, um, you know, resistance type work or strength work. And suddenly they've now got two sessions back to back, one at six or seven o'clock in the evening, finishing at maybe whatever time, and then another one at six or seven o'clock on a Tuesday morning. It's two separate days, but it's within 10 hours that they've done a significant block of time and they haven't quite managed to deal with the cost of one before throwing another one on top of that when they're below the curve anyway because they've just got up. Their system has been using energy overnight to fuel all the different functions that go on. Um, They've maybe not got enough in after they've done that session the night before. Um, So they're below the level of the energy balance line. And then they dig themselves into a further hole because they said, oh, do you know what? I'm going to do that particular session faster because that's going to help in terms of that upregulation of fat, you know, as a fuel burning source. But that's not the time I would be doing that because that's far too close to the previous session. And actually, you're going to do a gym session after that as well. Now, based on what you've just said there, do you think the athlete should vary their nutritional plan around their training diary? Absolutely. First question I usually ask an athlete is, do you train the same way every day? And they say no. And the second question I'll ask them is, do you eat the same way every day? Absolutely. I'm a creature of habit. I do this, this and this. There's your answer. You know, if you're eating the same way every day and you're not training the same way every day, there's your energy mismatch straight away. And the reality as well is that once you're in an energy mismatch deficit, you're more than likely going to be in a carbohydrate deficit and your protein intakes are probably not going to be as good. So you're going to be behind the curve in terms of recovery, fueling and you know, the likelihood is that your inability then to gain lean mass, which is going to improve things like, you know, um, strength, endurance, speed, and your recovery time after session is going to be so much more, you're going to be sore, you know, DOMs are going to be longer and lengthier, you know, the list goes on. How much of an influence would your nutrition have on the possibility of you suffering from overtraining syndrome? Yeah, there was a really nice paper a couple of weeks ago, um, and, and I'm just I can't remember where it was. It was um, so basically it compared what the differences were between overtraining and underfueling, and the reality is both of them can exist separately, irrespective of one another. But the likelihood is um, that there is a very very high chance that underfueling, particularly with carbohydrate and 
you know, an energy mismatch is going to lead to, you know, um, uh, certainly under, you know, performance. Um, all of those signs and symptoms are, are, are very similar. And I think for me, we've done a couple of the Mucin tests to test for that, looking at it's a two-step test where you, you feed an athlete a, 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 an exact amount of food to give them exact amount of nutrients, particularly carbohydrates, protein and fat. And you look then at their output of some of the hormones, things like cortisol, etc. And the first time that we did it, um, we got one of the kind of, you know, nutrition companies to, uh, you know, the ones that do the food delivery stuff to yes. ask me. I gave them what I wanted and I said, I need a breakfast that is X amount of calories, X amount of carbohydrate percentage, X amount of protein, etc. Um, and they came back with this beautiful, massive bowl of porridge, you know, some blueberries, and then they came back with a lunch and whatever. But the reason that the, the porridge sticks in my mind so much was that the athlete that we were actually getting to do this particular test, it took her an hour to eat that bowl of porridge. And I walked out of the kitchen and I went, you don't need to do some really expensive test here that's going to take us all day. I know that she's not able to consume the calories that she needs for the type of work that she's doing. That told me everything I needed to know because there's two reasons. Something like porridge is fantastic and it's a great um, part of most athletes that I work with. They're energy or a lot of bits of their diet but the reality is that it will fill us up really really quickly and not deliver the amount of carbohydrate or calories that we need potentially for a piece of work that we're going to do so if you're going out let's say to do 25k 30k whatever it is and the cost of that is going to be whatever. And you consume a big bowl of porridge, which is great because you feel great afterwards, you feel full. Um, the reality is that it's pro- probably a third of what you need for the piece of work that you've done. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Just as I'm listening to you there, my head is going off in tangents there now. So would it be right in saying the porridge might not be the perfect fuel for refueling after a long session because it's going to no, s- slow down the uh, reduce the amount of calories you can actually take in. Yeah, it's going to fill you up really quickly, and it's it's potentially not. You need to add significant amounts of other things with that. But the reality is, when you have that big bowl of porridge there, you're not going to be able to manage. The yes. volume of food that you need, particularly if you're 60 or, se- you know, less than 70 kilos, it's, you're just not going to be able to do it. So when would the best time to take that porridge be? Maybe later on. Um, it could be something that you might have going to bed as part of your routine for the next morning. And the next morning, it may be that you might have a bowl of cornflakes or Rice Krispies. Because if you think about it, there's very little fibre in 
cornflakes or rice krispies or some of those other cereals that Joe public should not be eating. And this is the context that we're talking about. Um, you know, number one, there's little or no fibre, so it's not going to have the same effect on your gut as potentially some other foods might have. And also, if you think about how much of it you can actually eat, you can need to nearly eat a bucket full of it and you wouldn't feel that full. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, yes. And the reality is you probably actually need a bucket full. Yeah, that, know, some, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. I can just sense it now the way porridge itself is so heavy and it would actually fill you up. Um, it's great for somebody who's that I'm wanting to, you know, reduce their calorie consumption for, um, you know, so somebody that's significantly overweight um, is doing very little activity. I want them to feel full very quickly because then they're like less likely to eat other higher calorie foods. And my go-to will be porridge. So simple. So again, that's, that's where the context is, is really, really important. And for athletes, particularly ultra-endurance athletes, if you can come out of a session cost-neutral in terms of, you know, so say you do that training session and it is it costs whatever. If you have the fuel pre that session, possibly during that session, and directly after that session that covers the cost of that session, that means that everything that you eat after that goes into fueling all the, the physiological functions that you need to cover the cost of bone health, immunity, blood markers, etc., etc., soft tissue, etc., etc. And then it means that the next time what you eat from there on in is covering the cost of the normal physiological function and actually starting to add to the pool for your next session. You're putting money into the bank of you and also money into the bank of the next session that you're going to do rather than being completely behind the curve and everything that you eat after the session is trying to catch up to the session that you've just done and then means that there's nothing left in the bank of you. And this is then where we start. This is why we get to a situation where people start to get injured and start to get sick. Because fundamentally, there's no money in the bank of you. Now, with the elite athletes you're looking after, do you do all this work for them or do you expect them to well, be in some way in, intuitive to what they should be doing based on the education that yourself has given them? Um, we find it's a bit of both. You know, with with newer athletes that we work with, we'll start at the start, at the start and, you know, work around some of the some of the issues that they've had or, you know, what they're trying to achieve. Um, you clearly have to try and buy in in some way, shape or form. Um, if an athlete has been presenting and they're getting sick or injured all the time, there are red flags. So we need to try and find what those red flags were and maybe use that as a carrot to try and, um, I suppose, because remember some of these processes and this is a process. None of this happens tomorrow or the next day. That's why nutrition education is so very difficult. It's not like the laying of hands or doing an S&C class where 
you do A, B, C, D, bang, session over. It's a process that takes time. I think the body's like a bit of a soup. <laughs> yes. So it means that for some people, they respond to this a lot quicker. And for others, it takes a lot more time. And you almost, not quite hand-holding, but there will be wobbles in that period of time where maybe an athlete puts on weight and doesn't feel that that's the way they want to go. But the reality is that if you stick with the process and you follow the process to suit what you're trying to do, the process will look after body composition, not starving yourself. Now we briefly mentioned ultra distance there as, as we were talking, and the time I first met you was up in Belfast, and it was at a development day for ultra running, and it was specifically aimed at athletes targeting a 100k race. And in the audience, it was made up mostly of athletes, not who you'd expect would be stepping up to 100k, but they were athletes who were running a longer duration race, the 24-hour race, where they tried to cover, their, cover the most possible distance within 24 hours. And I just sensed a bit of confusion in that the athletes weren't sure what they should be taking during the 100k race, but they were basing it on their own beliefs about what they felt they should be doing from talking to people. What do you yeah. think an athlete, uh, or sorry, how do you think, say, the energy demands for a 100k race, which would be at a high enough intensity, would differ to somebody doing a 24 hour race? You probably weren't familiar with the 24 hour race, were you, until until that day? Or had you heard of it? Yeah. No, I had heard of it. Um... And it's such a low intensity. But what I have found or, or have seen during the 24 hour races that you get people relying a lot on sugars and taking gels and then they're suffering from stomach issues. What would you suggest maybe as, as a fueling plan for a 24 hour race? Now, I know everybody's different, but just what would you yeah. think is a guideline? I suppose the guideline for me is and what one of the things that stuck out in my mind from that particular session was the amount of people that actually didn't use some of their training sessions to practice some of their fueling strategies for actual races. Maybe I was imagining that, but it was almost like, oh, no, this is where we do our adaptations, so we can't actually do that. The reality is I think that most athletes doing those length of training sessions and aiming for those distances need to use every run as an opportunity to train themselves to get up to the volume of carbohydrate that they could or should be trying to aim for. And the reality is, if we look at the research around ultra endurance, you know, there, you know, it would suggest up to 12 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight. And the difficulty with that is that trying to get that in during a race is nigh on impossible, especially if you haven't practiced any of it. But I think that, you know, whether those rates are tolerable or not, you know, really depends on that practice element of things. Um, and that comes down to mixing it up between probably um, the, the sweeter things or those um, gels or whatever, but also looking to try and, and get in other um, nutrients in there as well. Maybe, um, you know, some protein maybe some fat, just to give it a bit of variety in terms of sweet and savoury, but also then to look at the fluid element of things where um, 
you're not overdoing it, but you're not underdoing it as well, and and that's important. But I do feel that there is an element of people not training as much as they could do in terms of what they can consume, so that they can start upping um, the the amounts. I think looking at the types of carbohydrates is really important as well, where um, there's variations in terms of things like multiple transportable carbohydrates, such as the fructose, glucose. Watching things like sugar alcohols that can be present in some of the gels, you know, so again, or bars particularly, where they're saying that they're sugar-free, um, and actually that can play serious havoc with your gut. Watching the bars that have lots of the sugars coming from things like dates and fruits, which again are high in these polyols um, or sugar alcohols. And again, that can play havoc with your gut as well. So although sugar gets a bad rap, sugar itself in terms of glucose and fructose don't tend to cause as many problems as sugars that are probably coming from what I would say more natural, in inverted commas, which people think are actually healthier for them. Um the guts really struggle with those. When you mentioned their training with, uh, sorry, practicing your feuding strategy and training, is that to see whether you can actually stomach what you're taking in or will your stomach and gut actually be trained to take it in through training? It's both. It's to train your gut and stomach to be able to manage that. And it can be trained. The reality is you need to use every opportunity to do that because when you come into a race situation, you're probably a little bit nervous. That slows down the rate of digestion. So, you know, you need to, in the back of your head, feel relatively comfortable that actually, you know, I've done this before. I do this every time. And it's say okay. And, you, you know, you've got a good strategy. It's every 15, 20 minutes, whatever it is. You start early in the race so that you don't wait to the end and then you've kind of gone past or you've increased the risk of bonking. You know, so again, and then you look at other factors that can be, that can affect the whole thing as well, which would be temperature and your environment. And because then if it's warmer, you're going to be burning through carbohydrate much quicker as well. And you have a bigger chance then if you get dehydrated, your gut responds to that also there is a greater risk in terms of dehydration um, for diarrhea, which it's a big risk anyway in ultra-endurance. But when you have that, then you have that risk too. Would you think that during an ultra-endurance race that the hydrating strategy should be mixed in with nutrition rather than just taking plain water? Or is there a place for water on its own? I think there's a place for water, definitely. But I think every opportunity that you can take onboard fluids, at that point you're also increasing your ability to match that requirement for carbohydrate as well. So uh, absolutely, I think you can do both. You know, you can mix up your drinks as well because it gets boring. Um, But the reality is I would be using liquids sometimes to try and meet those energy or carbohydrate um, demands as well as actually. And the reality is you're probably going to absorb a little bit more of it as well, particularly if there's some electrolytes in there also. Um, I think that's important too. Now, just as we mentioned, 
carbohydrates. Years ago, the big thing was carbohydrate loading. And yeah. in a way, it wasn't done as much there recently because people were on this more of a low-carb, high-fat diet. And then people were talking about becoming you know, more predominantly fat-burning during endurance events and that. And now there seems to be a shift. Well, I'm noticing a bit of a shift back towards carbohydrates again. What do you think yeah. of carbohydrate loading? You see, I think if you've got a good intake of carbohydrates through your training program, yes, that's um, right. Yeah, you you maximise the potential and the good returns from your training. And I think when you then introduce a taper leading into your race, you naturally create a carbohydrate load anyway, because the taper will do that. Because if you keep, and then what happens is you get the best of all words because what I've seen is when people are shoveling in carbohydrates that they're not used to, you know, the week before a race or three or four days beforehand, they feel bloated, uh, they feel uncomfortable, they feel sick, they're not used to it. Whereas if it's already been going on there as part of that training program where you've practiced all of these things, you know, you've, you've done all the bits and pieces, when you introduce that taper, then automatically, if you continue to eat what you're eating, then you will have created a carbohydrate load, but not in the historical sense of the way that it used to happen. So it's what you do most of the time rather than just that yeah. short period before the actual event. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can, it's about introducing varieties of different things into that during the race, you know, the snacking opportunities, you know, like sometimes I'll use beta athletes to maybe have trail mix whenever they're they're running or just pre or post. We might use things like pretzels. We might use things like, you know, even salted potatoes, like, you know, small baby potatoes. Or the other one that I think is useful sometimes as well is potato bread because you can toast that before you go out, cut it in small squares, put it into tinfoil and you have naturally something that's quite savoury as well um, you're not going to run the risk with some of those things particularly things around rice or potatoes where there's higher amounts of wheat and this is where sometimes people find that that gluten free element of things works quite nicely for them it's not actually anything to do with the gluten would you believe it's more to do with the wheat and it's how the wheat's absorbed particularly in a gut which is under pressure which it will be in an ultra endurance event. When you're pumping in loads of things like, you know, bars and gels and stuff like that, the gut has a lot of work to do. So by taking a little bit of pressure off, by mixing up all the different types of carbohydrates as well, it can really help. I find it very interesting that your experience and expertise extends beyond sports, as I mentioned earlier. And I think we can sometimes get pigeonholed into just having one way of looking at something. So I think if somebody just come out of college and went doing a sports nutrition course, that they're more or less going to be solving a problem like a textbook. Do you think that your yeah. other experiences has helped you solve some of your athlete-related problems and maybe pick up on something before it was actually a problem? Absolutely, yeah. Um Particularly in things like, you know, a lot of the gut issues. I worked in gastroenterology for a long number of years. Um, I actually worked with people who couldn't eat and that would have had tubes in situ for feeding. 
And one of the the problems that we would have seen a lot there um, was the use of sugar-free medications um, because they couldn't swallow medications. They were given um, liquid medications, which mostly are all sugar-free because they're mostly given to children, um, actually. Anyway, because it was a liquid format, a lot of these medications are actually used then to go down a tube to give patients um, the medicines that they need. But quite a lot of them, in making up the sugar-free, they use these sugar alcohols or polyols, sorbitol being one of the main ones, um, to kind of formulate the medicine. And this is causing massive problems with a lot of our patients around things like diarrhea. And, you know, I remember... I remember actually writing a case study paper on this one and I called it the solution was the problem um, in that a patient's medicines had been changed. She struggled seriously with lots of issues with her gut after that and her and her husband thought it must have been the feed that was causing the problem. But the feed had been the same. Nothing had changed there. And the only change was actually the medication, but the feed got blamed first. That's one example. FODMAPs in terms of IBS has been, a, a, you know, something that we would use a lot of, um, you know, in, in the management of, you know, people that have IBS. Just, I suppose, actually, you know, picking up on, I suppose, the nonverbals as well, picking up the messages that are given by people between the lines, if you know what I mean, John. Yes. It's sometimes not what's said, but what's not said by an athlete that actually can take you to what the root of the problem is. And I think my my background clinically, you know, I I don't think I would ever have been able to deal with some of the issues that I have um, dealt with in sport if I had come straight into sport. I, it just wouldn't have happened. Now, you've been involved in sports a long time and you've been to a few Olympics. Yeah, you look after a lot of athletes. Is there anything in particular that you might be curious about now in the world of sport nutrition? For me, what worries me a little bit is some of the disordered eating behaviours that some athletes present with. But they put it under the umbrella of things like, say, for example, they want to follow some type of diet. And the reality is, when I look at what's happening or see, I do see a little bit of some socially accepted disordered eating behaviours because it's falling under an umbrella of I'm such and such free, this free, that free, whatever. And, you know, it does make me sad a little bit because the reality is, for me, for athletes, food isn't the enemy. In fact, it's anything but. But there's a real, you know, I don't know what it is, but we do see a number of athletes that are struggling in life because one of the biggest issues they have is they, they do have issues around their, their food intake and, and disordered eating. And I, I put that on a spectrum of very serious clinical eating disorders right through to disordered eating behaviours, which is the reality for a lot of athletes. That's just, you know, if you're going to do a 24-hour race, you're not going to be following breakfast, lunch and dinner. That's the reality. You know, there are behaviours there with sports that kind of but then we get some of those personalities which are your A-type personalities which is drawn into 
particularly elite sport. And there was there's a, a something a conversation that myself and a, and a doctor had, you know, many years ago, which is the reality that elite sport is not good for your health. That's that's the reality. And is that a problem that you as nutritionists can solve on your own? Or does there come a no. point when it has to be the sports psychologist or a sports doctor? That comes down, you know, it's it's actually a team intervention at that stage. Right. And, you know, we're looking at some, you know, significant support from clinical psychologists and, and people that are trained in that particular area. Because, unfortunately, the reality is and in lockdown, we've seen more instances of eating disorders coming through, particularly of younger children. And the mortality rate for eating disorders um, is much higher than any other, um, you know, mental health, psychiatric diseases there. And that, that is the reality. From my own experience, back in 2009, I was doing a 10-mile race in the Phoenix Park and I just knew something wasn't right. My heart rate was low. I couldn't get it elevated to to what it should have been at when I was kind of running up a hill and I thought it was going faster than I was. I just knew something wasn't right. So I got I got in touch with a sports doctor in Trinity College, Dr. Nick Mahoney, and yeah. he diagnosed that it was as simple as I was overtraining through under-recovering. And he took yeah. me off the made-up diet that I was on, the athlete diet I had made up, and he just got me eating anything except what I had been eating. And two weeks later, yeah. now, I was mature enough to know that something was wrong and I went to do something about it. And I changed after that particular episode. It never happened to me again. I was ne- never yeah. had an issue really since then. But was, that's a, not every, especially with young athletes, they don't have that life experience or maturity to actually recognise it. And no, and I suppose in, in, from our point of view as practitioners, we've got to learn how to um, deal with everybody that comes through the door. So, you know, some athletes that come through the door will be quite open to change and you can negotiate with them. Others are very closed and, you know, for whatever reason, and it will take time to build those relationships. Um, others, you you got to put it in a context for them that's going to, they can see that there's a benefit and, and that might be performance. So you may have to, you know, help, may not be something that they're actually that interested in that's the sad thing um so you've got to look at that performance element and you know i had a conversation with somebody not that long ago and you know the the doctor had been working with them and they they didn't believe a word that they were saying or whatever and then they went off to see somebody else and that somebody else basically told them that they had a carbohydrate and protein deficiency now they've been told that they weren't eating enough but they needed to hear it in that terminology, which seems a bit odd, but I suppose it's horses for courses, isn't it? Yes, yes. And just mentioning fads and different diets and whatever, and I'm not calling this a, this a fad by any means, but veganism. I've yeah. noticed now there is a shift with a lot of ultra runners switching over, uh, following a, a vegan type diet. Now, the, most of the runners I know are following a good vegan type diet because they're putting the effort into it. But I have noticed that you will also see someone following a vegan diet but not doing maybe their own cooking. They're just buying processed foods. Do you think the I, I, vegan diet is, is a tricky one to manage for an athlete? I do because it sits in that pace. If we go back to that conversation we had about porridge, 
Yes. But the reality is that when you eat high amounts of, um, you know, legume, plant-based proteins, um, vegetables, fruits, nuts, they will fill you up really quickly, but they don't have the energy density that you might want. And so long as you can get the energy density in there for the cost of what you're doing, there's absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. It's when there's a mismatch, that's the problem. And the tricky bit is that um, you will have to have supplementation in a vegan diet for things like omega-3 fatty acids, um, probably for iron, potentially. It depends because it will bind. Um, Calcium um, can be tricky to manage as well. B12, definitely. And the reality is as well is that Sometimes you, you feel great, and that's, that, that is great. And, and to be brutally honest, I wish that most of the general population would follow a plant-based diet. Um, but it, I suppose the question I ask is, why are they doing it? Is it because of ethical and health reasons? That's great. But remember, health is context as well. And the context of running ultra-endurance in association with that is they need to really make sure that it's, everything's dotted and crossed because the reality is the place that it will have the biggest impact is probably on bone health. And when you find out that there's a problem with your bones, it may actually be too late to do something about it. Yeah, food for thought. Yeah, listen, there's nothing... I, I think what's for me, the word good, bad, healthy, unhealthy clean, dirty, none of this really should be terminology that's used with how we eat. Because the reality is we eat absolutely to fuel ourselves. But there's such a psychological element of eating. Um, There's companionship, there's family, there's social events. If that's starting to isolate you in in a way, or create anxiety because X, Y, or Z is not done, you kind of have to say to yourself, is that healthy? I don't know if it is or not. And it doesn't matter what that is. But again, that brings us back to that word. And I think that's the bit for me that's really something that I really always focus on now. Um, Because for me, there's nothing right or wrong. And I'll never say no to anything. But I'd like to know what the context is for all of these things. Now, I'm very conscious of the time there. I want to keep talking, but you've had a very long day, so I don't want to keep you much longer. But is there any resources that you could suggest or steer someone towards if they wanted to delve a bit further into the subject? Yeah, we've developed some nice resources, particularly around energy availability. Um, as part of the Institute and that they were done as a multidisciplinary team um, and they are available I think on the Sport Ireland website. Now trying to find them sometimes can be tricky enough um, but they're available on the Sport Ireland website under I think Institute somewhere around there so they're nice resources on a range of different things that maybe allows athletes to question um, a, a variety of different things in terms of some general resources, I always, I think the Australian Institute of Sports and Sports Dietitians Australia have done a very, very good job in developing a range of resources for 
a range of different topic areas. And one of the dietitians that's involved with Sports Dietitians Australia is a, a guy called Ricardo Costa, and he's done quite a lot of work um, around the area of ultra-endurance, particularly on that gut element of things, which I think is really important, and immunity. And actually, um, you know, I think they're maybe seeking out some information around that is quite useful. I think what I would try and do is, you know, stick to mainstream types of information as well. I do know that, you know, we do seek advice from our colleagues, i.e. our ultra-endurance runners or other athletes and fellow athletes. But sometimes that comes with, and, and fellow athletes, it comes with their own biases. Um, and and I truly try, as a practitioner myself, to keep my biases, you know, or give people both sides of the spectrum in terms of, you know, how, because I, I fully agree, there's lots of people in my business that have come into it and they struggle, they have problems of their own. Um, some people say I've lots of problems, but um, the reality is I would just be mindful about some of the messages because remember, what works for one athlete might not work for you. And it's the professional, if they can get a, a bit of a, a, a feel for for yourself, um, you know, it might be worth going down that, getting some personalised advice. And what I would say as well, if you're somebody that is struggling with injury and sickness, and it's happening a wee bit more frequently than it should be, you got to have a real think and review of what you're doing to see could it be done a wee bit better. And then, you know, there are the sports interests group of the INDI have sports dietitians all around the country and the SCNR which is another list which might be for the UK and Ireland you know they have practitioners around the country as well so have a look and maybe you know seek out some some advice from um, somebody on a one-to-one basis. That's great and just as you mentioned the Institute of Sport in Australia I had read a study that they did I think it was called a supernova where they were studying low carb high fat and a Canadian yep. race walker, Evan Dunphy, who does the 50k, yep. he took part in that. His yep. performance dropped when he went on to low carb. But then when he switched back over to carbohydrates, he broke the Canadian national record. And that was in advance yep. of the Rio Olympics. So that, to me, yep. from an endurance point of view, should, did show the importance of carbohydrate yep. in the diet. And there's actually some more interesting work that's going to come out of that and and it's funny because it's some stuff that we're actually doing within the institute as well so we've talked a lot about the risk of energy availability and that bone health piece i think they'll dig a little bit more and it appears that even more importantly if it's low carbohydrates that's a major problem within that then there's even more risk of bones being affected significantly for individuals as well. And as you mentioned, biases, one that I'm particularly aware of is the, the recency bias whereby people favour the most recent information that they come across. And that's where social media, yeah. I think, really catches yeah. people out. Yeah. Rather than do something to to the full, they're changing, they're following what's new all the time. They'll see somebody yeah. posting about best way to lose fat. Yeah. And the same person, yeah. the next week will post another best way to lose fat. And that's what they got caught up on. They just 
they don't follow anything through. Follow the process. Yeah. Stick with the process. Um, it may feel uncomfortable for a while in terms of some of the things. And I certainly know from a lot of my athletes that a lot of them are going, are you crazy? You know, are you trying to make me into a Christmas turkey? But the process for some people takes longer than others. There will be wobbles there. But look at some of the subtle messages that you're being given. Number one, are you running injury-free for a period of time? You may not be running the speed that you want to be running. You may not be at the weight that you think you should be at. But have you been injury-free? Have you been able to put together a block of consistent training? Have you been able not to get sick? These are the subtle messages that you may not be picking up on, but actually it's part, it's an early part of that process and it will start to pay dividends. Before I let you go, if you had an athlete who, who was to the training session, say maybe 60 minutes at roughly what their marathon pace would be, what would you suggest as a refueling method after that for uh, recovery? Um, something that has a significant amount of carbohydrate in it, probably around about 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight in the hour afterwards, and something around that will give them 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So if you're 60 kilos, I would be looking at probably... 90 grams of protein and I've been looking at, you know, somewhere between 60 and 120, if I really could, grams of carbohydrate, um, yogurt, milk, cereal, toast. Um, and then what I'd be following that up with quite quickly afterwards is a meal of some sort. You know, it may not be a big meal, but it, it's certainly um, a meal that's going to give you, you know, your proteins, your carbs your antioxidants in terms of fruit and veg. And maybe, you know what, a little dessert won't go a long way Lovely. either in terms of something like a fruit crumble with a little bit of custard. That sounds good, doesn't it? Lovely. And I'd often suggest for athletes to maybe have a small carton of chocolate milk for after the training session. Would that be okay? Perfect. 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 And last question, what's for dinner? Pardon? What's for dinner? What are you having for dinner this oh, evening? Well, would you believe we're actually having vegetarian pasta? Okay. That's a good... Well, that's that's a, that's a safe answer, and I believe you. No, we are. The, no, I believe be you. Good. I can smell it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's today's dinner. Now, last night was bolognese, but today's going to be a bit of vegetarian. Lovely. Now, Sharon, thanks very much for your time. Not at all. If you enjoyed this on the other podcast, you might consider leaving a review or subscribing. Thank you. Thank you.